0: Brad. As Napoleon Bonaparte famously said, the winners write the history books. In season one of Rain on Me, we will delve into the Imperial Bees and examine the families of the Biernays, the Bonapartes, and the Bernadottes, and how they intertwined to change monarchies around the world forever. How did a French soldier and a merchant's daughter become the king and queen of Sweden, whose house reigns to this very day? What does the Queen of Holland's notoriously messy life have to do with the Second Empire of France? How did monarchies around the world come to have Creole roots? These questions and other intrigues will be answered as we look at these families and their strategies, drama, and follies, and how they not only changed monarchy, but politics around the world. Join me, your host, Jennifer Goldbranson, for season one of Rain on Me, episode 10 An Imperial Divorce. Hello, hello, welcome to Rain on Me, a podcast about European royal houses. I am your host, Jennifer Goldbranson, award winning screenwriter and journalist, as well as an author. And you are here in season one that I am calling Imperial Bees, where we discuss the intertwined houses of Birnay, Bernadotte, and Bonaparte. And in this episode, we are getting into the messiest divorce of its time, the divorce of Napoleon and Josephine. So just to recap from the last episode, it became abundantly clear in 1806 with the birth of Napoleon's second bastard son, (laughs) illegitimate son, uh, to the Countess Volevska, that the problem in securing an heir to his empire was not with him as Josephine had so convincingly laid upon him, but it was actually with Josephine's infertility struggles that she had had since her imprisonment in the Carms prison. That along with her advancing maternal age, Uh, made it very unlikely that she was going to uh, give Napoleon a son. So we kind of have a bit of a crisis around 1809-ish. Well, no, no, no. Let's roll that back. We actually start to have a bit of a crisis a year later in 1807. In 1807, it was rumored that a list of available princesses that would be Uh, offered to Napoleon in marriage should he divorce, was drafted. On this list, we had the Tsar of Russia's two sisters. We also had the Archduchess of Austria, Maria Luisa. And we had the Infanta of Spain. And these were presented to Napoleon as potential wives for his next... (laughs) I don't know how to say it. For his next adventure into producing an heir to his throne. Um, And Napoleon's kind of having a crisis of conscience at this point. He and Josephine, at, at around 1807, they have been married for over eight years at this point. And the relationship, the power struggle has kind of leveled out. He's seeing her value with the people and how masterful she is at creating an image and really supporting him in his endeavors. Uh, he, it's becoming more of a partnership. There's a lot more um, affection between them. And this love is starting to grow, where it was kind of this passionate power struggle of give, take, lose. Um, and, and somebody was always trying to have the upper hand. It's now leveled out into being true partners and true confidants in each other. And he is heartbroken at the idea of having to give up Josephine in order to secure his throne. And he kind of flip-flops a bit. He doesn't really want to. (laughs) There are some days where he's like, I have to have uh, an heir to my throne. And there are other days where he's like, well, I have, you know, I have Hortense and Louis' kids and it's not that bad. Um, And he's also very superstitious, and it really depends on who's in his ear at the moment. And there are two camps, obviously, uh, who are buzzing around him. The first camp is saying, it is your destiny for the stability of the French Republic to divorce Josephine And have a child with a princess of Europe. It will form an alliance with these countries that are declaring war on you all the time, and it will solidify your place in the world. Now, remember, Napoleon's obsession is with being seen as legitimate. And so far, the royal houses of Europe have not acknowledged him as a legitimate ruler of a country. In fact, a lot of them are housing exiled Bourbons who would do nothing to reclaim their throne if given the chance. He has already had an assassination attempt bought and paid for by the Bourbons. So it's becoming more and more clear that he is going to have to form an alliance with one of these powerhouses, or it's going to just make his life incredibly difficult because they keep declaring war on him and it's draining their treasury. He is almost out of the Louisiana Purchase money he got swindled on because he was desperate. The other thing is is that his siblings are not well-liked throughout Europe. In fact, they're quite disliked. Um, His brothers are not to be trusted. The people don't like him. Louis kind of gets the benefit of the doubt because it seems like the Dutch are acknowledging the fact that he's trying, but he's just kind of angry and inept at the same time because he wants freedom to rule. Joseph, as we brought up in the last episode, complete and utter failure. Pauline all over the place. Caroline's the only one running her stuff. So it's kind of it, He's trying to work around his nutbag family and um, secure sp- secure peace in Europe. Because another thing is, is he's running out of soldiers. He's just burning through men because he's always at war. So he needs a bit of peace and he needs baby booms so that he can keep his army well-personed um, and not have to resort to conscripting like 14-year-olds. So he's kind of at this crossroads where he can't trust his family And but it's not Josephine's fault. And she's actually the rock. And he's also very superstitious in his own destiny and what he believes. And there are pro-Josephine people in his ear saying, um, you know that she's the whole reason why you're here, right? Like she's your talisman. She's your good luck. She is orchestrating everything to the public to make it look good. If you kick Josephine to the curb, all of that luck's about to run out because nobody is as good as she is at making this look like a party <laughs> when in fact it's desperately kind of clinging to um, relevancy by its fingernails. I mean, it's hanging by a thread. He needs a win somewhere. So we have this cast of characters kind of come about. And when you read Napoleon's letters to his ministers and to his people, you really note the order with which he puts these people in. Um, We have the crazy family of the Bonapartes. We have his stepchildren, Hortense, his brother's wife and the Queen of Holland, and Josephine's daughter. And we have Eugène. Who has been his right hand, basically raised this kid, and the Guernay kids don't quite behave in a way Napoleon predicts. They, it's nuanced with them, and we'll get into that. We also have his ministers. Now, his ministers are just kind of like go with the flow guys. They're they're yes men, and. Um, They go wherever the wind blows. A lot of them don't like Josephine because Josephine is becoming very powerful. And we know how much men hate it when women threaten their station, right? So (laughs) Josephine's power with the people is very, very threatening to them. The other two main characters we have in this Greek tragedy are Talleyrand, who is as slippery as they come. Talleyrand is in the business of Talleyrand. And we have Fouché. Fouché is the minister of police. And it's not like being the chief of police nowadays. The minister of police is basically the chief spy. He's the CEIA. So his job in all of this is to kind of massage it. And you never really know. Like, you know Talleyrand is on Talleyrand's side. But you never really know where Fouché really stands on the issue. Now, Fouché ends up being incredibly loyal to Napoleon, but he's not out to burn Josephine either. Whereas Talleyrand's like, tired of the train tracks, we don't give a shit. So (laughs) So those are your cast of characters in all of this. So let us go from 1807 until this point. So in 1807, as I said, this list of princesses of Europe gets delivered to Napoleon and he initially thinks he's gonna go with the Tsar's sisters, but then he has like based on intelligence, he's he's kind of having second thoughts because he thinks that the Tsar is somewhat duplicitous, that it's going to be, Here's my sister, now I'm gonna get your country. And he's also warned against the sheer manpower Russia has, and that an invasion from the Tsar would not be so easily defended whether his sister is on the throne with Napoleon or not. Spain, there are tensions with Spain. As we know, um, Joseph is currently the king of Navarre, and Joseph will eventually become king of Spain in his own right. Um, So marrying the Infanta of Spain is... Good on paper, but we also have to remember that Napoleon has a very, very contentious relationship with the Pope that will rear its ugly head in this moment because the Pope is going to get his just desserts for Napoleon's insolence, and he's going to wind up in jail. So it becomes decided that since Austria is the closest country with the most manageable threat, that the Emperor's uh, sister... Uh, Archduchess Maria Luisa will be the one they go with when business is settled. At this time, she is 16 years old. Napoleon's like 40, disgusting. But again, that's how royalty did things back then. When this comes out, this is when the rumor mill starts that Josephine is on her way out. And she is definitely spooked by this. She starts becoming highly paranoid and she is interrogating anyone she sees. She's interrogating Fouché. She's interrogating her kids. And there comes kind of this serene moment in about a year where she's like, oh, wait a minute, I hold all the cards here. And she starts to stonewall a bit and she starts to throw her weight around and it almost works. So... It's important to mention that the Bernadots in all of this are kind of taking a back seat. They're not really active in this at all, and in fact, Bernadotte has told his wife, Desiree Clary, if you are not completely neutral publicly about this, we are going to have a problem. Because Bernadotte is kind of looking for his exit strategy at this point. The Swedish thing is starting to gain momentum. He is starting to see the cracks in the armor of Napoleon. He knows what's actually going on versus the propaganda that's being put out to the public. So he knows that this is built on a foundation of sand, and he's just kind of hanging back and watching it all play out, but he's not showing his hand either way. I think he had like a sneaking suspicion that he would be given a diplomatic position independent of Napoleon soon. I think that he realized that he was as good of a diplomat as he was a general, and he's using that talent to his advantage, which who could blame him? If, you know, you were with some guy you found insufferable and you knew better than he did, why would you want to continue to work under him? So Bernadotte is forming an exit strategy because he knows that this is not sustainable. He also knows, no matter how much his wife hates Josephine, Josephine is the true ruler of France. And the second Josephine is not working the puppet strings, this all goes down like a house of cards. Fouché takes the lead at this point, and he decides in about 1808, that he is going to start kind of putting feelers out there. He is going to take the temperature of the people. He's going to kind of work his magic on Josephine, and he's going to work the kids. Now, to everybody's surprise, the Birnay children don't exactly take a side in all of this. And I don't know who advised them to... um, be this diplomatic. I don't know if this was something Eugene cooked up. I don't know if they had outside influence. There's not really a lot of documentation on it. But Eugene, as he said, when his mother married Bonaparte, he said, my number one loyalty is to my mother, but I will always be a faithful soldier. Hortense kind of takes the same tack. Hortense is like, well, I'm the mother of the heirs, but that's my mother. And so they kind of... Close ranks, but in a very amiable way. Um, Hortense is starting to cook up some drama of her own. She is having dalliances with various officers, and she is going to get pregnant by one of them. Her marriage with Louis is completely on the rocks and they hardly see each other. Now while the divorce is cooking, she is pregnant with their third and final child who will eventually take over France in the Second Empire Napoleon the 3rd. So the Biernays can't kind of throw everyone off because naturally the Bonapartes expect them to act like Bonaparts, to loudly declare loyalty, loudly close ranks and start an enormous amount of conflict. And the opponent parts believe that because that's how they act. They loudly close ranks and they act a fool. Whereas the Birnay kids, I don't know if it's because they were raised in aristocracy. I don't know if they're because they're not major players in that drama. They They really hedge this very, very well. And I can't help but believe that their ability to hedge this so well is what keeps them so successful and afloat. After both empires fall. So really kind of a study in neutrality here <laughs> and picking your battles with the Birnay kids. Um, so Fouché is, you know, trying to work the kids and they're giving him beauty pageant answers. And he decides that he's going to work Josephine. And Josephine immediately is like, I'm not talking to you if my husband sent you. I'll talk to him myself, which is brilliant, right? And Fouché is like, I assure you, Napoleon did not send me to talk to you. I just want to talk to you and, you know, discuss what's really going on. She's like, I have nothing to say to you. I'm literally married to the emperor. If there's something going on, I will speak to the emperor directly. And she kills it every single time. And Fouché enlists Napoleon's help. Napoleon does say to Josephine, I'm not sending him to talk to you. He's just giving you you know, the facts of the matter here and what, you know, the people are saying and whatever. And Napoleon is just like, oh, woman, come on. And Josephine's like, nope, I'm the Empress of France. I will be treated like the Empress of France. I'm not going to have the chief of freaking police come over and walk with me in the garden and pump me for information. Nope. Nope. No, I'm an Empress and I will be treated as such. And so she stonewalls. And it kind of gets everybody a little upset for two reasons. One, she knows her power. And they were kind of hoping she would fold like a, like a lawn chair. And, you know, just kind of like, oh, you know, I'm, yes, anything Napoleon wants. And she's like, Mm-mm, no, I built this empire just as much as he did. And she's like, our marriage is sacred. It was consecrated by the Pope. You don't really get to do anything to me. I was actually... Blessed by the Pope himself. So, if you want to deal with this, you've got to get permission from the Pope. And this is a fact that the Pope actually backs Josephine up on because they try to come from the angle of an annulment. Napoleon's like, Well, the civil ceremony we had when we were married wasn't valid, you know, and he gives all these reasons. And the Pope is like, Fine. But when I married you before your coronation, that was before God. I was there and that's valid. You're screwed, dude. So Napoleon is not happy about this. So the only way to get this to happen is if Josephine finally acquiesce. And this is where they're getting to their sticking point because they can't find a good reason to push her all the way out. She's doing her job. Napoleon loves you. All that drama, Napoleon loves you, Napoleon loves her. And all of that drama from, you know, earlier in their marriage is tampered down a bit because, you know, everybody's in this great area of prosperity, doing their own thing. Nobody's so hyper-focused. He's just giving kingdoms away to shut them up. They're screwing everything up, but they're not really bothering Josephine. There are two heirs for the throne. Everybody's fine. The only ones really, really pushing this are Pauline and Joseph. And of course Letizia from Italy and the cardinal uncle. So here we get into Napoleon's dilemma. So here is where people start working on Napoleon because he he can't pull the trigger. Marie Valevska has now had his second son. And the situation is getting quite tenuous. So he's getting a lot of pressure. And in a a letter, he writes, I'm getting pressure from my family, Talleyrand, Fouché, and my ministers. So it's really his family who just wants to see Josephine gone because they resent the fact that she's made them what they are today. And that she has so much power. And the whole Talleyrand thing is where, like I've said in earlier episodes, Napoleon has zero critical thinking skills when it comes to, like, what people think of him, right? So the Fouché is coming in with these... um, intel reports from the people in Paris and around France. And he's manipulating those reports to make it seem like the people are afraid of the stability of the Republic and the Empire. And in fact, what they don't want to do is go to war. They uh, and he's manipulating these reports to say that they would feel more secure with an heir. And I can only think that Fouché is doing this because, one, he doesn't like the fact that Josephine is stonewalling him, and two, the fact that it's job security, right? You got to keep the boss happy. And the boss just, in his eyes, needs help making the next step. Um, he's kind of frozen in his whole outlook on the whole thing. He, like, he is like very, very scared of breaking Josephine's heart. So... And we also, so, and then Talleyrand is always in the business of Talleyrand. Talleyrand, just like Bernadotte, knows that this is built on a pillar of sand. He knows that Josephine is literally the glue keeping this together. (laughs) That if it weren't for Josephine, it would be run a lot like Holland is being run at this time, which is just chaos. And every other kingdom, a Bonaparte is running except for Pauline. I'm sorry, Caroline. uh, In... You know, Italy, it's, it's madness, madness. So uh, the thing that b- benefits Talleyrand the most is an unstable France. It has always been that way. Talleyrand can line his pockets and get more power and influence the more unstable the ruler is. He's done this before. He did it with Louis XVI. This is his M.O. He's also getting real tight with the aristocracy in Britain, and Britain is just waiting for this to all crumble. So when you see in Napoleon's letters that Talleyrand, after his family, is the second person in his ear, you know that along with Fouché and his family, the manipulations turned up to an 11. And this is Napoleon's blind spot, because he truly believes that everybody's going to be honest with him and give it to him straight. <laughs> and he's so easily manipulated. And then again, that is a classic narcissistic trait. I mean, they're just gullible, stupid people. So <laughs> anyway, um, the other person that is very much manipulating this situation is Alexander, this is the czar of Russia. Now, one of his sisters, the older one has been married off. But the younger one who is only 14, has not been married off. And he's kind of cozying up to Napoleon. He's like, hey, what well, is it that this divorce? You know, let's talk about, you know, how things you want to talk about the Turkish Empire, because we could talk about Turkey, Turkey is a big thing between Russia and France at this time. And it's one of the biggest con- conflicts with Russia. So, you know, the Czars kind of like, mm, well, I still have my baby sister here, and you know, you get divorced. It won't have any, you know impact on our relationship. and and Napoleon is like hook line and sinker. like he's ready to to write the the proposal. <laughs> but then he writes in a letter, he's like, "Wait a minute, I'm not sure this guy is my friend." <laughs> <laughs> but just the fact that the he has the Tsar of Russia willing to discuss Turkey with him kind of cements the deal that he's done with the marriage because he has now been manipulated at all four points that he needs to do this. And nobody really is even being, you know, all that... <laughs> shady about it they're all just kind of like yeah it benefits me if you get divorced they're all being quite upfront about it and they're taking it from the fact that Josephine has had her day she can retire at Malmaison it'll be fine the French want change so here is what Napoleon had to say with his minister Colin Corp, about Alexander's proposal he says it is to be seen whether Alexander is really a friend of mine, if he is really interested in France's happiness, for I love Josephine and I never shall I be happier. We shall know through this the feelings of the rulers regarding this act, which is, will be for me a sacrifice. My family, one, Talleyrand, two, Fouché, and three, all my ministers demand this of me in France's name. A son would offer you far more stability than my brothers, who are disliked and incapable. Perhaps you would prefer Eugène. It is the wish of certain people because he is a made man. He has married a Bavarian princess and he has children. But that does not serve your argument. Adoptions do not found new dynasties. I have other projects for him. So the whole reason for this conversation is... Court kind of like trying to reason with Napoleon. He's like, uh, <laughs> you're kind of being lied to here. You're kind of being manipulated. Let's see if, you know, we can find a, 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 you know, resolution that doesn't involve divorcing Josephine. That's not going to do well. She has built this empire. And Napoleon's like, well, my family, you know, they're all telling me to do this. I mean, What's so funny about Napoleon is, again, classic narcissistic trait. He holds people on two different spectrums. His family is telling him what to do. But in the next sentence, he says they're disliked and stupid. (laughs) (laughs) And because the issue is that Hortense's sons are currently the um, adopted heirs of the throne, but they're babies. And one has just died. And we don't know if Hortense is going to birth a healthy third child or even survive it. So he introduces the idea of maybe adopting Eugène and having Eugène be his heir. But, first of all, Eugène doesn't want it. Eugène took the first boat to Bavaria. Second, (laughs) I don't know why I said boat to Bavaria. I think that's alliteration because there is no boat to Bavaria. You have to cross the mountains. Anyway, geography wasn't my strong suit. But... (laughs) Sorry. I'm recording this after work. I usually record on the weekends, but I was on vacation so I'm a little punchy. Um, anyway, so, you know, but you and he's like I have other plans for Eugene. Well, Eugene kind of like he's happy in Bavaria. He kind of he he gets to be a prince in his own right. He's a family man. He loves the quiet life. He adores his wife. His daughter will one day become the queen of Sweden. He's good. He's good, and um, it's. I've always wondered what his plans were for Eugène. I think that he had Austrian plans for Eugène. I think he wanted to install him in Austria. I think that was the grand plan. I don't think Eugène would have ever gone for it, by the way. So, let's continue with his conversation with Calencourt. And Calencourt said, "The Emperor asked me several questions on the Grand Duchesses, asking me what I thought of these princesses." And he goes to say, he is, there's only one that's of marrying age. And it should not be forgotten what happened to the marriage with Sweden. A change of religion will not be tolerated. Now, this is where religion comes back into play. And really, what kind of rules Russia out? Because we've got a cranky pope. We've got a cranky pope that doesn't like the emperor. Now, the emperor is... You know, he's, he's going to name whatever heir of his the king of Rome. He is a Roman Catholic. The whole point of the empire is Rome, is Caesar. It's kind of his shtick. And you can't have an orthodox country come into France. It just won't be tolerated. And this they're referencing what happened with Sweden when Sweden became Lutheran. That was a marriage that changed the religion of the country. And Callancourt is saying, you can't do that to the French. The French are completely Roman Catholic. They just got their religion back, and you've got a cranky ass Pope. I wouldn't, I wouldn't kick this bag of snakes if I were you. So there's a lot of hemming and hawing, and I think Callancourt is the the voice of reason here. He's kind of stepping out of the echo chamber saying, Look, <laughs> the one princess of marrying age was married off you're not marrying a 14 year old. That's disgusting. And the French people won't tolerate that. They're not going to tolerate hussars and the czar. They're they're not going to tolerate a complete removal of Josephine, installing a child empress, and having a complete culture change. Now, what kind of circumvents this is that Talleyrand comes in and says, well, the court of Russia speaks French, and they have French customs. And Kalancourt is like, but they're orthodox. And we can't be in a vulnerable position with a cranky pope and, you know, a tempest of an emperor (laughs) that's going to allow that to happen. That will not be tolerated. And also, Russia would never tolerate a conversion to Roman Catholicism because of the basis of their culture. So we have a bit of a culture clash here that cannot be overcome. So let's continue. Unfortunately, Kalancourt is... um, outnumbered by the echo chamber, and his voice of reason kind of falls on deaf ears. In November of 1809, he Napoleon was rumored to have dictated to Champagny a letter destined for Callincourt, in which the French emperor instructed the latter to ask Alexander for Archduchess's Anne's hand in marriage. Anne, let's not forget, is only 14. Gross. Because at this point, Napoleon is like 36. Ew. But it becomes apparently clear, and then Josephine gets wind of this letter. And she starts to put her plans and actions. Because remember, she's just as connected as he is. She has a lot of power in this game. So uh, about eight days later, on the 30th of November in 1809, they have dinner together. And at this dinner, Napoleon announces that he has decided on separation and that divorce is a very real possibility. Now, this is where we get an acting class for the ages, like Master Thesbian Josephine Bonaparte is going to just turn it on. This whole thing is just a master class. Um, in the miniseries Napoleon and Josephine, um, Oh, what's an Isabella Rossellini, perfection, perfection. So <laughs> Josephine falls out, whether it's real or not. And um, the the documentation says she suffered a nervous fit and fainted. I think she screamed her head off and passed out <laughs> from the rage. She had like a literal rage stroke. She uh, was so incapacitated, she had to be carried back to her chambers by both Napoleon and Bousset. The next day... Napoleon calls in Hortense and says, My decision is made. It's irreversible. The whole of France wants the divorce. They cry out for it. I cannot ignore their wishes. Nothing will bring me back, not tears, not prayers. So he's basically calling in his stepdaughter and tells her, Tell your mom to cut the shit. We're not doing this. The people of France want her out. Now, Hortense knows this is bullshit. And Hortense, you know, again, the Birnay kids, I guess you don't get raised by a crafty old girl like Josephine without learning something, right? (laughs) And Hortense says, fine, you know what, you're the emperor, you do you boo boo, but I am going to leave with my mother when you cast her away for a warm womb and my brother will come with me because remember the day you got married, we said, we pledge loyalty to you, but our first loyalty is our mother. And Napoleon goes bananas, like straight up crackerjacks. He's like, what? You will all leave me? You will abandon me? It's like, bro, you're literally throwing their mother out and, um, and then he's like, You no longer, he's such a freaking narcissist. Like, this is like right out of the playbook. You no longer love me. Is that it? If it were simply for my happiness, I would sacrifice it. But it is for France. And I can only imagine Hortense listening to this guy just spit all over himself about it. She's kind of like, Yeah, sure. <laughs> And he's like, you should be consoling me for being forced to give up the dearest of my affections. (laughs) So here he is. He is looking at his wife's daughter that was sold in to marriage with his lunatic brother has had to have three children to secure his throne. She's heavily pregnant with the third one, by the way. And he's like, you should feel sorry for me because I have to put her out. (laughs) Like, if that were me, I would have just like walked away. (laughs) Sure, dude. But he goes on. And I love that somebody, could you imagine being the scribe in the room with them that was writing all of this down? (laughs) Like one of those seen but not heard royal scribes. Oh, my God, that would have been the best job ever. So he goes on to say, These men that I have made great demand, stability for our institutions and our people, I owe myself to them. And it seems that in me alone reside all their strength and happiness. Now, this is classic manipulation by both Talleyrand and Boucher, Foucher, because that's kind of what the people are saying. The people are saying we have full faith in Napoleon and we don't want to go to war anymore. We have no men left. That's what they're literally saying. But he has been twisted and delivered to him in such a way that he genuinely believes this malarkey. After me, anarchy will return and the prize for so much effort will be lost for France. Instead, in leaving a son raised in my image. A son, which France will be prepared to regard as my successor. France will profit from that good that I have left her as the very least of the fruits of my labor. I will have suffered, but others will profit from it. Oh my God. He is, he's literally setting the case to his stepdaughter that he has to put her mother out and he is going to martyr himself in doing so. And when I'm gone, anarchy will return. Well, he wasn't wrong about that. And um, these actually all come from the memoirs, Hortense's memoirs, which are a a difficult read, but it's all in there. So in a couple of days after that, about a week and a half, Eugène arrives at the Tuileries. And Napoleon tells him, Mom's gone. Gotta go. Uh, A few days later, and and just like Hortense, Eugène says the same thing. Well, thank you for your time, stepfather, but that is my mother and I will be retiring with her. And he does the same thing. Don't you know how much it hurts me? You should feel bad for me. Everything I've done for you. And Eugène said, and I thanked you, but I will be retiring with my mother. So on the 13th of December of 1809, Napoleon tells the Russian cabinet that any decision regarding possible marriage had to be made before the end of January. He's putting deadlines on people. He isn't even divorced yet. <laughs> the, the big thing that's holding this up is that Maria Fedorovna, Alexander's mother, and uh, basically who really rules Russia, uh, is in absolutely 100% anti-Napoleon, and she maintains the final say in who her daughters marry. Uh, That's her right as the queen mother in Russia. And um, so she's kind of blocking this whole transaction. Um, Kalancourt comes back and says, I'm convinced that Alexander's intentions are honest and the conversations you guys have had about this have been on the up and up but the fact is his mother's just not going to allow it to happen and that as the queen mother is her right they are her daughters and you're, it's not happening and um well napoleon's like napoleon would rather walk away from this than be made to be so, than be made to look bad so rather than get rejected by russia he um Kind of walks away from it. He he's like, well, this this union with Russia could be kept open, but we we have to go with the backup plan in Ru- in Austria. We've already determined that the Archduchess is quite fine. It's a it's a local competitor <laughs> that we can manage an invasion, and it's a good um, alliance to have. So on the fifteenth of December, uh, Napoleon tries the annulment tactic. So they have a family meeting and they, they do the whole annulment thing and um, Napoleon pleads his case. And here is what Napoleon says, God knows what such a decision has cost to my heart but there is no sacrifice that is beyond my courage if it is shown to be for the good of France. I must add that far from having any reason for reproach, I have nothing but praise for the attachment and the affection of my beloved wife. She has graced 15 years of my life. The memory of them will remain engraved in my heart. She was crowned by my hand. I desire that she retain the rank, and title of crowned empress but more than this that she never doubts my feelings that she value me as her best and dearest friend now this is this is a crock so the pope is on josephine's side but because you know the pope is like you don't get it you don't get a papal annulment no sir i married you myself So since Napoleon really doesn't give a shit what the Pope says, he's like, screw you, we had a civil marriage first, and I'm in charge of everything that has to do with the civil code of law in France, so we're going to do a civil annulment. (laughs) Ha 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 ha. That leaves me open to marry what other Catholic princess I'd like. Thank you. And um, now, Josephine threatened to go full Catherine of Aragon on him. If you're not familiar with Catherine of Aragon... She was the first wife of King Henry VIII, who saddled up to the Pope and made divorcing her nearly impossible until he had to have a whole entire new church made for that to happen. <laughs> but Josephine relents because she gets to keep her title. She gets Malmaison. She gets another title. She gets a... cat. I mean, he. She basically said, pay me, bitch. And Napoleon's like, "We're I'm still gonna be your husband. This is like a name only." And but our darling Josephine is all about theater. So if we think, so and, and just to make a few points on Napoleon's speech before we move to Josephine's completely spectacular performance, um, when he says things like, "She was crowned by my hand." that's on purpose uh, because she the the thing with the French people is that she made him right like the whole chip on the Bonaparte shoulder is that she made all of them so he has to put in there that she's empress because I crowned her she didn't make me what a tiny tiny ego large ego on a tiny man I mean And he, you know, it's his desire that she retains the rank and title of crowned empress. But more than this, she's my dearest friend. And you know Josephine was like, okay, okay. But this is, this is, I mean, chef's kiss. Just when you get divorced, if you get divorced, you need to recite this at your final prove-up hearing. With our most august and dear husband's permission, I must declare that no longer holding out any hope for a child that could satisfy both his political needs and the good of France. (sighs) She just straight called him out. (laughs) I can't satisfy his political needs. (laughs) Get it, girl. I give to him the greatest proof of attachment and devotion that has ever been given on this earth. Everything I have comes from his greatness, ego stroke, ego stroke. It is his hand that crowned me up on this throne, ego stroke, ego stroke. <laughs> I have received evidence of nothing but affection and love from the French people. Ding, 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 ding. She's, she is totally signaling to the French people like, uh, I see you, y'all gonna be mad about this. <laughs> I just, you know, it's just that first paragraph alone. I, you know, she gets her digs in just so, like, I want to believe she wrote this herself, right? She's like, I can't so- satisfy his political whims, but I know the French people get it and love me, and I'm actually gonna end up the martyr in this. Oh, just, mwah. perfection. I acknowledge these feelings in agreeing to the dissolution of this marriage which from this moment on is an obstruction to the well-being of France. Oh, damn! Depriving it from the joy of one day being governed by the descendants of a great man, clearly chosen by providence to eradicate the evils of a terrible revolution and reestablish the altar, the throne, and social order. Now, this is when she starts to lose it and she gets full-blown banana pants hysterical. And she's like hysterically sobbing out these final lines. And it starts with, Nevertheless, the dissolution of my marriage will change nothing in the feelings of my heart. And she's sobbing and she's sobbing and she's heaving and she's sobbing. The emperor will have me in always in his greatest friend. I know how much this act called for by politics and greater interest. There she's calling out his family and Talleyrand. Has pained his heart. True statement. But Glory, it's kind of like her moment of saying, I see you fuckers. I see how you've manipulated this situation. And I'm going to put it on the record. Oh, love her. But glorious is the sacrifice that he and I make for the good of our nation. She's like, it's not just your sacrifice. Mm-mm-mm. No, no, no. <laughs> you don't get to own this. So um, at 10 p.m., the uh, petition was drawn up. Um, on the 16th of December, the uh, Senate was to vote on the dissolution, and the Senate voted 76 to 7 with four abstentions. Now, I just I, I want to highlight that because you kind of you're kind of like, well, that, that seems like it was a landslide that they wanted Josephine out. But when you think about it, that, we, we have a Senate that's kind of a, a puppet Senate, right? Like, this is a Senate that, as we talked about in previous episodes, was kind of established to just kind of go along with whatever he wanted, right? It was a Senate kind of made to make the people happy so that we don't have, like, a bourbon king, right? This is a Julius Caesar kind of deal going on. The fact that seven of those senators said no And four abstain from voting altogether. That's 11 of them. That's a pretty big dissension when you think about it. You have an emperor and, you know, they're kind of, that's a, that's like, that's a sword to fall on. Right? Because if you think about modern politics in America today, no ruling party is willing to dissent When the, like, it does why would you, you only do that when you're wanting to make a point, right? If the bill is going to pass with the majority, you dissent, you dissent loudly to make a point. just wanted to, I just think it's incredibly brave with the way the government was set up back then, that, um, uh, it was really, I think quite brave, quite brave. Um, it's worth noting that the marriage, which is dissolved But there's no mention of divorce at this point. Such an act would have contravened the Code Civil in a number of ways. Um, In 1806, they forbade divorce for princes and princesses of the imperial family. This was to keep Josephine in law. I mean, uh, not Josephine. It was to keep Hortense from bolting. And um, the... Article that I'm referencing from the code, the Civil Code, agreed that a divorce could not take place if the, white, the wife had reached forty-five. Josephine was forty-six at this point, so it would have been illegal for Napoleon to divorce her. Uh, the other important reason for avoiding a divorce was that Napoleon would have then been obliged to turn to the Pope for annulment, which he already refused. So this was kind of the only way to do things. And I just, again, that's why that Senate vote to me is so important, because they're openly kind of serpentining around the letter of the law. And it's, yeah. (laughs) Um, In the same day that they voted, uh, Josephine left the Tuileries with Hortense and they went to Malmaison. So that is the divorce of Napoleon and Josephine. Um, And... So the Pope said, fine, you want to play hardball? Let's play hardball. I'm not crowning your next Empress. And we're going to get all into that in the next episode because we have a new Empress arriving and we kind of see things start to really fall apart with Josephine's absence. And Josephine is just being amazing through all of it. And she is winding, continuing to live rent free in everybody's heads. So thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast. And we will see you again next week. Take care. Bye.